Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Gustavo Gutierrez Suarez, one of the hosts of New Books in Film, a podcast series of the New Books Network. Today, we are here with Katie Geist. She is trained as an art historian. She has touched and published widely on Ozu and East Asian cinema over multiple decades. She is also author of The Cinema of Bean Vendors, From Paris, France to Paris, Texas. Hello, Cathy, and welcome to New Books in Film. Hello, how are you? <laughs> um, really, uh, I, I'm, I'm really glad uh, to to have you here and, and have you talking to us about your book, Ozu, A Closer Look, published by the Hong Kong University Press this year, 2022. Um, I'm more than happy uh, to have this interview. <laughs> um, I am a, a really big fan of, of Ozu cinema. And also I am really happy to offer our audience a close-out look to, to this outstanding, insightful book. Um, but before we start to talk about the book itself, um, could you please tell us a bit about uh, your academic life and the work you have been developing previous to the publication of this book? Sure. Um, well, I grew up in Michigan, and uh, my father worked at Michigan State, and um, in the course of his career, he was sent to Okinawa, and I was still a child. And long story short, I spent five years in Okinawa um, while it was under American occupation. And this was, um, uh, this, Ozu was still alive during this time, and my father actually saw one of his films, although we didn't know anything about Ozu at the time. But um, my dad was taken to this film, which was supposed to be, you know, a, a, a highly recommended film, and it turned out to be Ohio. Um, and he came home, told me all about it. And later on, when I started to study Ozu, I realized that was the film he had seen. Um, but anyway, so, you know, sometimes people say that uh, Ozu's films aren't realistic, but as far as I'm concerned, that's the Japan I knew uh, when I was growing up. So anyway, um, I 
graduated from high school in Okinawa and uh, attended the University of Michigan. And as you mentioned, I got a PhD in art history. I wrote my dissertation and later a book on Wim Benders. And Benders adores Ozu and talks about him constantly. And although by that time I knew who Ozu was and I liked his films and so on, but I hadn't really studied them as an academic until I started working on Benders. And then I had to because Benders was so infatuated with Ozu. And in 1982, there was a retrospective of Ozu films at the Japan Society in New York. And the guy who was running the Japan Society at that time was somebody I knew from, uh, from graduate school. And he got me a press pass to the entire retrospective. And so I had the opportunity very early on to see all of Ozu's um, extant films, surviving films. Um, and I wrote, I had promised Film Quarterly I would write an article for them, which I did. And uh, I've been writing about Ozu ever since. <laughs> Now, um, how did how did you become interested, um, specifically in in writing this this book in particular? Um, how, how did you start your work on it? Um, could you please tell us about um, the genesis and the process behind this book? Yeah, well, I'm retired and. Uh, uh, we live out in the country, and I had an opportunity once I retired to pull all of my writing about Ozu together. And in the meantime, from the time I started, where the only way you could see Ozu's films was, um, you know, in a retrospective, or you know, they were distributed in places like New York City or uh, campuses. But in any case. And, and when I was teaching, I would rent the films for my classes. But, um, but generally, you know, it was, it was hit or miss to see his films. But now they are all on DVD. And so that combined with the time I had uh, as, a, as a retired person, I could pull it all together. And I used a lot of my previous writing, but because I had the films on DVD, I could go into great detail and, and really analyze them very, very closely, uh, even more closely than, you know, when I had analyzed them on celluloid, because I could just, you know, you, you're able to stop instantly when you want to and so on. Um, so I was able to really uh, analyze them deeply. And so it all it all came together um, when I after I retired, and um, so I've used uh, previous material. Three of the chapters are pretty much as they were originally published, but everything else is you know is given a much more a much broader context than what they originally had. Okay, now um, 
you begin the book um, describing two black and white pictures hung on the wall, on a wall in your studio, right? And why did you decide to, to start uh, this book with these two, two images? Uh, why are these images so important? Well, I started my art history career as a medievalist and then switched to film, which was kind of a radical thing to do. But I always explain that by saying that, you know, the, the Middle Ages is the, is the first time we have a narrative put together by pictures, um, at least the, the, the first that we have, um, you know, that's come down to us. Anyway, so, um, and also the, the art of the Middle Ages, because it was done in the cathedrals, was a popular art, just as film is a popular art. And um, so I, I had been to Chartres Cathedral several times and had photographs from it. And one of these is a very poignant photograph of St. John. Uh, and he looks very, you know, very world-weary. And uh, in, in this depiction, it's a sculpture. Um, and it, it just reminded me of, of Ozu. And so I put his picture above. And this picture I have from the 1982 retrospective, a poster of Ozu. And um, I just think there's a... The way Ozu also is so, he really has this vision of the human condition as so fragile. And um, I think that's also what you see in St. John's face is, is the fragility. You know, in, in that case, of course, it's, it's this whole religious implication. But you know, Ultimately, it's it's just a human testament to the fragility of life. Well, that's beautiful. Um, now, uh, let's talk about the structure of the book. Okay, um, the book uh, is structured in three parts, right? Uh, part one, the silent films. Part two, uh, War and Peace, the sound films from 1936 to 1952. And finally, part three, religion, sex, and other matters. Um, wh why did you choose to? Um, why did you choose to uh, structure the book this way? Well, the the book is not per se a chronological, you know, history of Ozu and his films, but there is a certain chronological logic to the three parts. The first part is about the silent films, which I had studied, but not as much as the other films. And I have to say other people have not studied the silent films as much. And so um, I... I wanted, and I had these very specific topics I wanted to cover. And then the second part, really, I, I wrote an article once about what I felt were the sort of 
political implications of, of Ozzy's films and um, particularly as regarding the depression and the war. Well, that expanded to, in part two, to be the, um, uh, just a, 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 an analysis of every film he made from, these are his first sound films from 1937 to 52. This is, or, or it's 36 actually, just, um, to 52. These are the years when Japan was at war, um, first in China, and then it expands to a war essentially against the United States, although it's, you know, it includes all the allies. Um, and then there's the occupation, uh, a, a seven-year occupation by the United States in Japan. All of this time, Ozu's under, under constraints of censorship. Um, I mean, really, his, you know, even before the silent films, that there was the censorship that it, that had more to do with morality, and and now there's this whole political onus where he can't say what he really thinks about the war um, or, you know, how the war is going <laughs> or about the occupation. The Americans also censored uh, Japanese films, not as severely as the Japanese had censored them, but but still, you know, there were certain things you were not supposed to talk about, you were not supposed to you know, go back and talk about the, you know, valiant samurai history, the feudal history of Japan, and so on. So, um, uh, throughout this whole period, uh, his films are always censored, and within, and, and so what's particularly fascinating about them is that he will sneak in these little critiques, but if you're not paying attention, you you won't notice them at all. Um, and then the third part, I didn't see any point in going over um, the films one by one anymore because, you know, I had written about them a lot. Um, that is the later films. And so I just used the third part to talk about uh, specific topics that concerned all the films, um, but with an emphasis more on the on the later films. And of the articles that um, I used intact from from the past, three of them are in the the last part. Um, you know, there's three articles where I felt it was necessary to say, you know, this is redone from this previous article and, and those are all in the last part right and um now we could um re review uh, each of the three parts okay um let's start um with part one the silent films which contains uh, chapter one the gangster films chapter two signs symbols and motifs Chapter 3, 
The Sound of Silence, and Chapter 4, Narrative Strategies, Texts and Subtexts. Um, what are the main uh, insights um, contained in, in this first part? Um, okay, the gangster films are Ozu's foray, I would say, into, into modernism as the Japanese saw it at that time. Um, he, you know, I mean, they're fascinating. He, um, you know, he, he, he does the only real love story uh, of his career uh, is Dragnet Girl. Uh, I shouldn't say of his career because of the films we still have. But um, the gangster films allowed him to be working in a world that wasn't really Japan. You know, it was a kind of a fantasy world. It's not like American gangster films that were much more embedded in real situations, mainly prohibitions in America. Um, but in Japan, at least in these gangster films, they're, they're kind of fantasies. And um, two of them are love stories. One is... Uh, I would say a more sort of sweet love story that's not particularly sensual, but in Dragnet Girl, he gets into a real, a real uh, sensual love story. And given the um, the censorship of the time, he's he's just a genius, I think, at evoking. This, uh, this sensuality, this pull that this man has between uh, his regular girlfriend and this other girl that he becomes uh, infatuated with and so on. Um, and he used the actor Joji Oka in this film, well, in the in Dragnet Girl, who, um, who is a, a real hunk and... Um, he only used him in one other film, but he really, um, I think, carries the film in terms of, of portraying this, this, what I call a gangster in love. And um, it's, just, it's just an amazing and unusual film in Ozu's Ub. But beyond that, um, these films, you can find the influence of German Expressionism in them. Um, Ozu, uh, at different, in different films, Ozu will um, evoke Christianity, which uh, has a very interesting history in Japan. And uh, that first appears in Dragnet Girl, um, where he, you know, it's all about you know, reform and repentance and change of heart, all these real Christian ideas. But Ozu doesn't just leave it at that. He actually poses um, the, the heroine against the Christian church at, at one point. Uh, so he really kind of links up the themes of the film with... Um, with 
with their source, which is which is Christianity. Christianity is very popular in Japan. Uh, in the 20s, it was considered part of modernism. And for, for Japanese, I mean, for us, it's, it's you know, old. It's old, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of uh, what you might call retro, but... Um, for Japan at the time, it was it was uh, it was modern, and one of the modern aspects of Christianity was the um, emancipation of women, and uh, and this was part of the the attraction I think for many Japanese to Christianity, and we find uh, and we'll get into that in the third part uh, Ozu's attitude towards women, but. Um, but it runs throughout his films, this kind of pushing for the emancipation of Japanese women. Anyway, so that's the, the chapter one. Um, chapter two, um, chapter two argues a lot with the critic David Bordwell, who's probably still considered the leading expert on Ozu. Um, but, Bordwell is very into formalism, and uh, he, you know, he has a very big book on Ozu that um, primarily is dedicated to analyzing Ozu's formal aspects, um, you know, how he edits, how he shoots, and things like that. And 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 uh, Bordwell is brilliant on that, but for some reason, he he did not want to acknowledge that there's, you know, that there's real thematic and symbolic content in the films. He thought that you couldn't, you know, create these very complex films. Um, and, and, you know, it's like you couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. You couldn't create this, this, um, uh, formal intricacy that you have in Ozu, and at the same time have, um, you know, have real meaning to the film. And he kept calling the films banal, which I don't think they are at all. In any case, um, and and he, you know, denied that there were any symbols in the films. And he, because I was writing at the same time and saying, you know, this means that, and this something else means. That, and he would attack me in his um, in his publications, um, just saying, "Oh no, this can't be. This is impossible." So, so chapter two really goes through a great deal of the symbolism in Ozu's films um, and what each what each is it like a catalog of those symbols and how they change. Um, you know, sometimes they're just motifs. Sometimes they have a deeper meaning, and and how uh, that you know can inform the whole structure of uh, of the different films. And okay, chapter three. Um, this was something I had never explored before. This was completely new for me. Um, is how. Uh, if you in a silent film, how do you create sound? You know, how do you 
how do you visualize sound? Um, it's a fascinating topic. And it was kind of pioneered by a French critic uh, named Michel Chion. Um, and so I tried to analyze that in Ozzy's films. And um, it, and it, it, well, the other issue with uh, Japanese films is that they all, all the silent films had a, a, what was called a benshi accompanying them, narrating them. And by the time Ozu was working uh, in the, well, the very late 20s and 30s, the benshi were sort of on their way out. <laughs> <laughs> studios didn't want them anymore, but they insisted, uh, they had a union and they insisted on, on continuing their work. So, um, so we don't know. Also, as far as I know, he never wrote about the Benshi, but his studio, Shochiku, uh, was the one that really wanted American-style films and they wanted to get rid of the Benshi and so on. In any case, Osu is reputed to have wanted his films to be complete. Um, so if he couldn't get rid of the Benshi, he still wanted them to stand on their own. And that meant visualizing the sound so that you didn't have to have the Benshi. And... Um, I don't know, you know, he often, he does what I call part before the horse editing very often where you'll see a close-up and then you'll see the full shot after. And I sometimes wonder if he did that to confuse the Benji so they didn't always know what was coming. But in any case, he, he does that also uh, with dialogue in the films. He'll have, um, you know, he'll show a line of dialogue and then he'll show the speaker or he might not even show the speaker until several shots later. Um, and, um, and now I'm getting into really chapter four, which is uh, what I call his narrative strategies. And that includes this uh, cart before the horse editing um, but the, my main point there is that he wanted people to figure things out. He wasn't just going to do like a Hollywood film that was um, very uh, insistent on, on showing you everything and making sure you never, ever, ever were confused by anything. And, and if you read, you know, the early history of American film, there, you know, Step by step, they would find out what could the audience understand, you know. And there was always this real, you know, tentativeness in, 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 you know, in, in trying to always be sure you were bringing the audience along. And that became the hallmark of Hollywood film. Well, Ozu was just the opposite. He would give you clues, <laughs> but he, he made it difficult uh, to follow, and you had to really pay attention. But what has come out of this is that people still don't always understand his films. And there's this belief that 
you know, his films are ambiguous or the endings are ambiguous. And what I try to show in this chapter is that they're not ambiguous at all if you pay attention. And I think people are just lazy. <laughs> they always films are ambiguous, you know. We don't really know how this ends. Um, but, but we do know. And um, so, and, and I, I'm finding that this is, you know, being ambiguous is supposed to be the hallmark of modernism. And you find people who are in, inspired by Ozu, but they think he's ambiguous. So their films are ambiguous because this is modern. But I don't think his films were ambiguous at all. In terms of the, uh, in terms of the stories, I, I should clarify. Um, when he's, you know, trying to insert a, a sort of question about, say, uh, Japan's wars and so on, that can be ambiguous. He doesn't want to come out and exactly say what he means. But so you can read things one way or the other. But the stories themselves are not are not really ambiguous. And I would say further on that, that the Japanese, you know, the whole culture is a culture of subtlety. And uh, and that's what we find in his films is subtlety, not ambiguity. There's a difference. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right, now um, let's take a look to the uh, part two, War and Peace, the sound films um, from 1936 to 1952. It includes uh, chapter five, the calm, chapter six, the storm, and chapter seven, the reckoning. So what, in, what are the main um, insights that uh, you discuss in this Part two. Right. Um, okay, well, the chapter titles refer to different periods of Japanese history. The calm is the run up to, to the intensification of the war in China, which happened in 1937. Um, Japan had been, well, They had won concessions in Manchuria all the way back at the time of the uh, Sino-Russian War and also the uh, uh, Sino—I'm sorry—the Sino-Japanese War, but also the Russo-Japanese War, where Russia also had certain claims on Manchuria, and Japan got concessions in Manchuria and. This became more and more militarized um, starting in 1931. So Japan was already at war there, uh, but it all intensified in 1937. And then, of course, because the United States and the Allies were objecting to what Japan was doing in China, 
and creating embargoes and so on. Plus, um, you know, the European uh, countries had colonies in Asia at the time. Um, so there was a lot of tension and eventually Japan, uh, as we know, went to war with the United States, attacked Pearl Harbor, uh, which drew the United States into the war and also then the United States allies, Britain, France, Netherlands, they all had colonies. Japan overran all of those colonies uh, after 1942. Um, as well as the Philippines. And, um, you know, so this, this became this, you know, incredible life or death conflict, um, primarily with the United States. Um, so that's the storm. <laughs> and then the reckoning is the fact Japan lost the war and uh, was occupied by the United States, underwent unconditional surrender, which meant that the United States just, you know, moved in and dictated how Japan was going to go forward at that point and, you know, wrote a new constitution and so on. Um, and as I said earlier, uh, there was very heavy censorship throughout all, all of these years. Um, but anyway, in the Calm, uh, we find uh, the first sound film is called The Only Son. And that's essentially a film about the Depression. Uh, Ozu's last silent film. In fact, many of his silent films had, had uh, especially as we get later um, into the 30s, had dealt with uh, with the depression. The silent, uh, the only son was the um, was the first sound film, and it was about you know these mainly one man, but 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 the whole milieu that he's in. Um, these people can't get ahead. You know, they're told that education is uh, is the way to get ahead this guy's mother sacrifices to, to uh, educate him and it doesn't help. He, he never gets a good job. His former teacher also goes to Tokyo to um, try to make his way and ends up running a, a pork cutlet shop uh, and so on. So it's a, it's a, it's kind of a depressing film <laughs> about the depression. Um, the next film is a comedy. Um, and as I, I think I titled each, each one of the films has, has a little title. And I, um, I think I titled that one goodbye to all that, uh, because it is, it's sort of the end of a certain period of Ozu's comedy and his style and, and so on. But I will say both of these films um, have bits in them that are very anti-Nazi. 
the Japan was uh, negotiating with the Nazis at this time um, and eventually uh, made uh, certain agreements with them. And, and Ozu very clearly hates the Nazis. Um, and, and this wasn't such a controversial position at the time, although one couldn't come right out and say it. But you see it in The Only Son, where there's a, um, it's actually not a Nazi film, but it's a German film from the period um, called The Unfinished Symphony. And he does these little cuts of it that make it look absolutely ridiculous. And the, the mother who's been taken to the film falls asleep. And why did Ozu hate the Nazis because they had destroyed the German film industry. And what we saw in part one is that these German expressionist films from the 20s were very influential for Ozu. Um, And the, you know, Japanese critics generally, you know, thought these were wonderful films and castigated the Nazis for essentially destroying that industry. And then in um, the next film, the What Did the Lady Forget, the comedy, um, there is this, the, the heroine is, has this full-page spread uh, in front of her from a magazine of Mar- Marlena Dietrich. Well, Marlena Dietrich was also anti-Nazis. She had, she had come to America actually before, or I think before the Nazis came to power, but she would, they wanted her back and she wouldn't go. And she uh, did a lot of work in America for uh, the emigres that were fleeing the Nazis. Uh, and, you know, as everyone knows, a lot of uh, Germans came to America, uh, many of them Jewish, to escape the Nazis and worked in the film film industry and uh, of course like all refugees they needed help and so on and Marlena Dietrich was very instrumental in in working uh, with these refugees so she was a real symbol of uh, of being anti-Nazi but again there's no commentary about it we don't you know we don't learn about that Uh, we just see her image and that's it you know that's as far as Ozu's gonna go uh, in his critique, but it's there. It's it's in there. And then, of course, he did two films uh, during the Warriors, only two films. He never made a war film, you know, about battles and so on, about the military. He, he, he I think, very uh, deliberately avoided doing that. Um, but we have the first film, The Brothers and Sisters of the Toda Family, um, where he's essentially um, um, endorsing the colonization of China. And uh, and then in the uh, next one, which, um, and it's very, you know, yeah, he endorses the colonization of China. He's uh, the characters are very excited about moving to China to start a new life. And, um, you know, people, <laughs> a 
Americans look at that and they say, oh, how could he have done that? That was such a bad thing. But you have to remember what Japan's position was on that, which is, you know, we, you know, Europeans, you know, America colonized the West, Europeans colonized uh, India and everywhere else. And, and, you know, why shouldn't we, why shouldn't our citizens also have the opportunity to, you know, have, have this ability to start over in a, in a new, a new place, a new land. Um, so that's really the position of, of this film. And yet there is also um, also a bit of critique in there where um, you see this picture by Goya and, um, and it appears not just in one scene, but in a couple different scenes. It sort of follows this one character around. And well, what is one of the most famous things that, that Goya um, did were his etchings called The Disasters of War, which um, had to do at the time with the Napoleonic Wars. But in any case, um, you know, so that's, it's very, very subtle, but, but that's, that's there in that film. In the next film, there was a father. I think that this film um, celebrated, um, it didn't have soldiers per se in it. The, the son um, in the film is going, is, is being recruited and, and is going to eventually, we know, go off to war. But, um, but what I say is that, that it really offered comfort to families during the war. It justified the, their, the kind of sacrifices they had to make. And it also suggested that, that this is the path that young men are going to follow uh, to, to become soldiers. And yet there's also a certain amount of critique in, in that film also of what's going on. Um, anyway, that's, uh, <laughs> that, those are the, the two wartime films that, that very much have to do with Japanese politics at the time. And yet Ozu seemed to, you know, just avoid and sidestep um, ever making an actual war film, even though the government wanted him to, and uh, he was, you know, from the time he was a little boy, he knew how to get around things and, and you know, go his own way. And he was apparently, you know, very always very jovial, very uh, charming, and um, you know, so he just he just sidestepped these things. Anyway. Uh, the last uh, chapter is about the films made during the occupation. Uh, the first two really talk about um, the hardships that Japanese were undergoing. The first one, uh, Record of a Tenement Gentleman, is um, 
essentially about war orphans, even though it turns out the little boy in the film is not an orphan, but, but that is essentially the theme. Um, the next film is essentially about prostitution, uh, which was a huge, a huge issue. Um, you know, and there were American troops all over Japan, and a John Dower, who's a um, uh, historian at MIT, he might be retired by now, but in any case, he, he wrote a very, very important book about the occupation, and he talks about how kids would play. This is part of their game, just like, you know, how little kids imitate adults mm -hmm. when they play and he records some of the games kids would play at that time from what they saw adults doing so one of their games was you know essentially pimping for their sisters <laughs> they would play that um and you know play at accosting gis and saying you know i have a sister and so on and so forth so it was huge problem and, and that is uh, addressed in the film Pin in the Wind. And then Ozu, those were not popular films and Ozu so he kind of turned away from these problem films and made Late Spring, which is about the daughter getting married, which is kind of the you know <laughs> the cliche view of of uh, of Ozu because it, it became a model uh, for, I would say, his best-known films, uh, apart from Tokyo Story, which isn't really about a marriage. Um, but it became a model for quite a few of his subsequent films. And, but, you know, it was made in 1949, and it seemed to portray this very stable, peaceful Japan. And there's little things in the film, though, that make you, well, as I said, they're Im embedded in a, in a very harsh reality. There's a, a sort of humorous part where the father and his sister are arguing about whether you would eat at a wedding, whether it was polite to, to eat at your wedding. Well, 1949 was the first year that the Japanese had enough to eat. Uh, up to then from, well, essentially throughout the war, but also in the beginning of the occupation, there were just food shortages, people starving, even starving to death. So, you know, this little argument about food in late spring um, has a... a a much less funny <laughs> context um, when you know one of the the girls um, the girl has had her her wedding meeting Noriko has has met her potential groom and her girlfriend says oh grab him good men are hard to find well you know that is kind of a Cliche. I think women in every period think that, <laughs> right? But in 1949, Japan, yeah, a lot of good men were dead. 
and uh, were indeed hard to find. So, so we find these these references that, you know, uh, seem humorous, but but they really are are uh, allusions to to a much tougher tougher situation. Um, and then we get the Munenkata sisters, which is interesting because it is one of two films that talk about the characters having been in the colonies, uh, in Japan's colonies. And the other film is a, a post-occupation film, Tokyo Twilight. Um, and it, it, neither of these were very successful films, but they are the only two that really um, talk about, well, I don't even think they talk about the experiences in the colonies, but the characters have been there. And that that is, you know, mentioned uh, for, for uh, a number of the, the characters in both films. And it seems like that the unhappiness in these films arises from, from that. Um, and so it, they provide this very stark contrast with the brothers and sisters of the Tota family where, you know, we're all excited to go off and be in the colonies. Um, and now the, the actual reckoning for, for what that how that ended uh, is, you see, in, in the Munekata Sisters and later on in Tokyo Twilight. Um, let's see, what, oh, and then uh, Early Summer is uh, also one of the marriage films. And um, eventually we get to the last film, The um, Flavor of Green Tea, over rice, and that—that that is actually a remake of what did the lady forget? It's got the same, essentially the same plot, the same contours, and so in some ways we've come full circle from the pre-war comedy to now the end of the occupation comedy. And um, and it's so it's a it's a happy film, and but the the again Ozu's never really critic ever really criticizing the occupation itself, but in this film um, there's towards near the end there's a scene in which. The husband um, is going off on a on a trip to to South America, and you know Ozu, and and so we see his plane pulling out and leaving. And Ozu was uh, famous for for not following action, you know, for letting people go in and out of the frame without following them. So he doesn't follow the plane. It's a Pan Am plane. It's got a little American flag up in the, you know, on the top of the tail. So what we see is this American flag going 
slowly out of the frame and <laughs> the people and then there are cuts to the to the people waving to the plane but there are seven of them you know so there's this this real you know america is leaving and and have actually left by the time the film is released um but but i just think that's that's so precious this oh goodbye <laughs> goodbye america um and and the, the and it has um this very joyful ending of the characters running down the sidewalk and, and i just think it's a real celebration that you know japan is back now and uh, is free as as i said liberated from the liberators um so anyway and uh yeah so that's part two Yes, um, let's move on now to the part three, right? Religion, sex, and other matters. Um, it contains um, chapter eight, narrative extrati narratives strategies in the late films, chapter nine, religion, chapter 10, gender issues, chapter 11, a two-dimensional art form, and finally, chapter 12, the Ozu touch influencing others. What are the main insights in this uh, final part of the book? Right. Okay. Well, as I said earlier, these are um, discrete topics that um, uh, some of which I had uh, written about before, uh, but but are basically expanded some more than others. Um, and they include all of the films, but but there is a, a, an emphasis on the late films, uh, particularly in chapter eight, which is exclusively about the late films. Um, although that chapter eight includes films that were in part two, they're essentially the, the post, well, I would say post late spring films. Um, but it's a kind of a follow-up on <clears throat> chapter four, uh, where, again, I try to explain the intricacies of, of the late films and, and how what people consider really odd or unusual are, in fact, key parts to the films. Um, for example in late spring um critics had remarked on the fact that um th that we never you know it's about the girl getting married and and we never um see her her groom we only ever see this other guy <laughs> and how come is that well what I try to show in the film is that this is the guy she should have married. And this is a commentary on essentially on how rigid the Japanese uh, marriage customs were and that uh, people didn't always end up with the person. They might end up with somebody who was fine uh, for them, but, but they didn't necessarily end up with the person that, that they maybe were were most simpatico with. Um, 
And so, yeah, and, and, and Ozu is always saying, well, you know, uh, an arranged marriage is fine if people, you know, if the couple works out, it is fine. Um, but there's also a kind of sadness that uh, she doesn't uh, end up with this other guy. Um, there is the beginning of an autumn afternoon, the, the, um, which is in the, the closest, um, well, it's sort, of, it's, it's sort of a remake of Late Spring. Um, but in any case, uh, this, um, there's a baseball game at the beginning of this film. And this guy says he wants to go to the baseball game. We see the baseball game. And then we go to a bar, and the guy is there. He's not at his baseball game. And so we're going, well, why did we see the baseball game? And, uh, you know, and it's kind of Ozzy's tricking us and taking us a place where the character is not. But, um, but it turns out that the whole film is about missed opportunities. And the girl, again, does not end up. And, and here it's very specific that she really prefers this one guy. And uh, he's already taken as it turns out. Um, and so the whole thing is about missed opportunities. So right at the beginning, the guy misses his baseball game and he comments on the fact that he's missed his game. Um, and, and that theme just follows through the whole film. Another example is in the film Equinox Flower, where the girl does marry the guy she wants to, but the father objects very much to that and um and, and so the film really is about the father and and how he's adjusting to this post post-war world and there's a long long scene where he's with his former classmates that's a japanese custom where you know classmates stay together um you know, and have re have reunions. That there's this this bond. It's it's very, you know, we have high school reunions in America, but um, but for Japanese, this is a real, you know, much more formalized and, and important thing. So he has this reunion with his buddies, and what do they do? They sing old war songs and they talk about. You know, and, and some of the war songs refer to feudal Japan and how you're going to defend the emperor and so on. Um, and the scene is quite long, and people, you know, have written about it and said, well, why is this in here? Um, you know, again, this is Ozu being so, you know, unusual. And, um, but what it is, is, you know, this this is this man's this is how this man came of age, you know, when we're celebrating the emperor and we're fighting for the emperor and so on. And at the end of the scene we find that uh, well and, and by the end of the film he has reconciled with his daughter, one of the other guys who's in the reunion 
has reconciled with his daughter who's gone off with the boyfriend she prefers. And so these guys have to have to learn to adjust. And uh, and this this scene where we under come to understand how they grew up and what the mindset was when they grew up. This uh, this forces us to to recognize that and sympathize with what we would otherwise think were kind of unsympathetic characters. And so it's pivotal to the whole film and to this man's change of heart and so on. Well, anyway, those are just some examples of, of his strategies in, in, the, in these late films. Um, so, shall, shall I go on? <laughs> Yes, and now um, and you can uh, um, deep. Um, maybe you can talk about uh, the other matters, right? Uh, religion, gender issues. Yes. Right, right. Okay. Well, um, again, uh, people, you know, there's people who see Oz's films as sort of uh, religious or. Jim Benders always calls them sacred. Um, and, and others like Bordwell who say, no, they don't have anything to do with Ozu. Ozu himself said, no, my films are not about Zen, <laughs> and so on. And so I just tried to tease out what are the religious aspects? Why do people, first of all, many, many people perceive them as having a kind of religious or spiritual aspect to them. And as I said earlier, um, well, I think we see the evidence of a lot of different religious, um, uh, religious traditions in the films. Um, I've talked earlier about uh, Christianity uh, being present and... Um, in the late film, which I was just talking about, Equinox Flower, um, uh, we see a, a, the top of a hospital, which uh, was started by Christian missionaries. There's a big cross on top of the hospital, and that becomes very prominent in the film. Well, why? <laughs> Because the father has a change of heart, you know, and, and this is... This is this Christian concept. It's not Buddhist. You know, it's uh, in, in the Buddhist eschatology, uh, people don't change, uh, at least not until they've gone through many, many lives. But of course, Christianity poses that yeah, you, can, you can reform, you, know, you can repent and change. And um, this is what happens in this film. And so we have this you know, uh, change of heart, reconciliation, and so on. So Christianity is present in, in a number of different films. Um, aspects of Buddhism are present. Um, it turns out that actually Ozu's family had a background in Zen, and uh, one of uh, a Japanese author has detailed all the way, you know, the, <laughs> where the mother was buried, where Ozu was buried, and so on and so forth, all were in Zen temples. And I, so there is certainly Zen aspects 
you know, the simplicity of the films, the, and then the emphasis on uh, transience and, um, you know, the shortness of life, the brevity of life. That is a real Buddhist thing. Um, it's really not, not Christian um, because, you know, in Christianity you're supposed to have eternal life and so people don't, don't harp on, on how brief human life is. But it is a very much a, a Buddhist preoccupation. Um, at the same time, Ozu could make fun of religion. You know, he has jokes that are based on religious traditions. Um, he has the little boys in I Was Born But doing a cross, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, the cross gesture that Catholics do as part of their game. Um, and um, so on. So he, he could make fun of anything. Uh, he makes fun of Buddhism at different times. Uh, but I think there's also um, a real uh, a real sense of I don't know as I was saying at the beginning uh, uh, just this kind of cosmic sense in the films of of the fragility of human life and that you know, that has that is in essence what all religions touch on you know, either. Yeah, and try to explain and, and so on. Uh, all right, in the chapter, Gender Issues, this is mainly about women and women's problems. Um, women, uh, well, I begin the chapter talking about chivalry and um, how chivalry existed in the West because of the Virgin Mary and this um, medieval um, custom of, of, you know, worshiping a, a lady and so on. Um, so, but this did not exist in Japan. And um, Western women, even though they were uh, still second to men, um, they uh, were much more elevated in society than Asian women were. So we find that Ozu is um, embracing the idea of chivalry in several of his films. But also, uh, if we go back to Dragnet Girl, we find that he has created a relationship there between people who, um, even within the film, their social status is such that uh, the guy... <clears throat> The guy is head of a gang. The girl is nothing but a, an office lady. Um, so in, in their society, she's, she's not equal to him, and yet in their relationship, she is. And um, I don't think this kind of a relationship really existed in Japan uh, at the time, at least not in mainstream society, but Ozu creates it. And, uh, and it's really very, very interesting to, to follow in that film. Um, but in any case, um, after the occupation or during the occupation because of it, um, the Americans 
did what they could to liberate Japanese women. And one of the things that they insisted was that arranged marriages, which were customary in Japan, um, they didn't like them and, and they discouraged them. But the Japanese, you know, they, they thought this was a practical, uh, practical custom and they didn't want to let go of it. And so in Ozu's post-war films, we find this debate coming up over and over again about arranged marriage. Was arranged marriage better than, um, than what they call love marriage or not? And um, <clears throat> so that is a theme in a lot of Ozu's films. Um, but we also find... Uh, I, one of the issues I found very interesting in Passing Fancy is the whole idea of, that's one of the silent films, uh, is the whole idea of male bonding. And, and that whole f uh, film is, is about, about male bonding, um, which is maybe more, more prevalent and more formalized in Japan. Um, than it is in the West. And, um, okay, so after gender issues, um, chapter 11 is a two-dimensional art form. This chapter is, a, is the combining of two articles I wrote um, about the relationship of Ozu to... <clears throat> to plastic art, to, to painting and, and printmaking in Japan. And the first part of that chapter is about the formal relationship between Ozu's art and Japanese, traditional Japanese art, which would be like the screen painting, ukiyo-e, things like that. And the fascinating thing is that this is traditional art in Japan, but when this hit, when this art was discovered in the West, it became the basis of Western modernism. So what's traditional in Japan is modern in the West. And I think Ozu, I don't know if he did it consciously or unconsciously, but a lot of his techniques uh, reflect uh, certain traditional practices in Japanese art. Now, the second part of the chapter is about the relationship uh, between Ozu and what is known as Nihonga painting. Nihonga is Japanese traditional traditional Japanese art practices after the Meiji period. In other words, after Japan started to modernize. And uh, it, it, Nihonga in itself is fascinating. Um, but what the Nihonga artists were aiming for is to be both Japanese and modern. Um, and I think those are the goals that Ozu set for himself. Um, 
he wanted to reflect um, reflect his own culture, but also at the same time to sort of push the boundaries of of cinema and be modern. Um, and but what's interesting is that um, the Nihonga artists were drawing on a traditional practice and kind of updating it, whereas Ozu was drawing on Hollywood practices, which, um, and, and then trying to make them more Japanese. So uh, there's kind of a reversal in, in uh, how they go about what they're doing. Um, but, um, but they both uh, were, were similar. They had similar topics and similar form and similar aspirations. So that's the essence of that chapter. Um, the final chapter is uh, based on, on a, an article that I originally wrote compare, comparing Ozu and vendors. And I expanded that discussion to include six different films and filmmakers that in most cases there was a stated relationship to Ozu. But in my first example, um, which is a 1950s film called Escapade in Japan, um, I, I, I have a lot of questions about the relationship of this film to Ozu, but somehow it's there. Um, Donald, this was a film about two little boys who run away and travel through Japan and end up in Nara, I think. They go from the inland sea to Nara. And, you know, the two little boys from the outset sounds like Ozu, right? And I was told that <clears throat> that Shochiku was a... Uh, co-produced the film, but I don't have, I, I, I could not corroborate that. Uh, so that's a question, did, did that really happen? In any case, it was shot in Japan. It seemed to have a lot of connections to Ozu. And, um, but what was also interesting is that Ozu, you know, the film Ohio is sometimes considered to be a remake of I Was Born by um, the, the uh, 30s film. Ozu had wanted to do this and had floated the idea for some time, but he didn't want to do it himself. He wanted someone else to make that film. Um, and it just didn't happen. And then Escapade in Japan comes out with its two little boys. And the very next year, Ozu makes Ohio himself. So it's, I'm wondering if there's, you know, kind of a two-way connection here uh, between Ozu and this Hollywood film. In any case, the other uh, filmmakers uh, are very clear about the fact that they are indebted to Ozu and um, 
they are Vim Vendors. And I have written most about him uh, because you can find traces of Ozu's influence in a, a great many of his films. Um, in the other cases, which are Peter Hanke's Left-Handed Woman, Wing Wang's Dim Sum, Kohei Oguri's Money River, and Masayuki Suo's Shall We Dance, there is this one single film that um, has been influenced by Ozu, and you don't have to guess at, at it. <laughs> they, um, they acknowledge his influence and their desire to kind of imitate him. And the, but the imitations are different, and what they have taken from Ozu is different in each case. But long story short, I think that the most successful of all of these films is Shall We Dance, the, the Suo film. Um, it's based on, or it, it jumps off of, Ozu's early spring, the character has the same name and so on, so that's not too hard to guess. Um, it, it does a little bit of Ozu's techniques, but eventually abandons them, and you see these dancers, um, you know, just, just uh, swirling across the, the screen in a very un-Ozu-like way. But what is so Ozu-like about it is its theme of, of the middle class and the kind of trapped middle class in Japan and their issues. Also, the, the division between men and women in Japan, how there's not very good communication between them. And this is something that comes up from time to time in Ozu's films, but particularly in his film Early Spring, where, where the marriage actually breaks down uh, between the, the two young people. But I just think that, that you know, he not only uh, takes off from, from a, an inspiration by Ozu, but really um, in a very poignant way gets gets at this this issue that was so important in Ozu's time of of the middle class and, and you know how how trapped they feel and in this case the character unlike the Ozu characters who kind of resign themselves to to their fate in this case, the main character finds release through dancing and this Western style dancing uh, that he embraces. So it has a, a much more, I think, upbeat ending <laughs> than, than those experience. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, those are the chapters. Right. Um, what, um, Talking about this uh, final chapter, um, the Ozu Dutch influencing others, uh, what do you think about um, Tokyo Ga? With this connection between Wim Benders and his highly admired Ozu, 
uh, how how do you see uh, this connection and in particular the last scene of Tokyo Guy in which Bean Vendors has a conversation with Yasuhiro Ozu's cameraman? Well, uh, there are a lot of people who think that um, this is when Vendors got interested in Ozu, but he actually was interested in him from 19... I think um, almost from the time, I think from 72, from the time that that New Yorker films brought out Ozu's films. But yeah, I mean, Tokyo Guy is his, um, um, what, his tribute to Ozu. But what, <laughs> what he says, which is very telling throughout the film, is that he he never could find Ozu's Tokyo. And this is a great disappointment to him. Well, part of the reason he couldn't find it is because he's 30 years too late. Um, but I think that <clears throat> one of the things I mentioned in my, in my uh, part about vendors is that I think he, he, found in Ozu this escape from war-torn Germany. I mean, um, he grew up he grew up in a city that had been completely bombed out. He was, I think he was born in 46, but right, right after the war. So this was, this bombed out city was, was the background against which he grew up. And he talks a lot about how he found um, he found solace in rock and roll. He, you know, the Americans were in Germany and they played rock and roll on the American uh, American radio station, ostensibly for the soldiers. But you could get it all over, and um, he, uh, he he found refuge in rock and roll. But I think ultimately he found refuge in Osu also. That um, you know, Ozu's making a film like Late Spring against that same backdrop of of a country that's in utter ruins. But Ozu sort of, after those first two post-war films, Ozu shows you a Japan that's completely intact. And I think Bender falls in love with this view of Tokyo of that Ozu presents because it's you know it's it's a Tokyo that has somehow over overcome the war and um, exists uh, as a as a kind of oasis um, as far as him talking at the end with Atsuda um, it's it's interesting. He talks about how how dictatorial Ozu was, which is another very interesting contrast with Vendors because Vendors is very you know loose and and, and spontaneous and you know decides the night before what he's going to shoot. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, whereas Ozu you know, would spend 
like eight months writing a script and every line, everything had to be perfect. It was perfectly storyboarded. And one of the things Atsuda tells us is that, you know, he would, when Ozu had approved the shot, he had to, you know, look through the camera and uh, approve the shot. But once he did, it got locked in place and everyone had to tiptoe around <laughs> so as not to disturb it. I mean, he, his personality was such that apparently as a, as a, a, a man, a person, a friend, he was very jo- jovial. Um, but on the set, he was apparently just this complete dictator and people kind of trembled before him, I think. <laughs> Well, Katie, um, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we end our interview, I wonder if you could please um, tell us about um, what uh, projects, what uh, research uh, you are working on now. Um, I'm just getting my life back, actually. I, I spent uh, a good deal of the last five years on this book, uh, but I'm still I still research around these topics and um, I don't suppose there'll ever be a second edition but um, but I'm still learning about Ozu and I don't know quite where, where that will go Thank you so much for talking with us today Kathy, all the luck and success for, for what is coming Okay. Thank you Thank you very much Thank you, thank you so much It was your host, Gustavo Gutierrez Suarez. See you on the next episode of New Books in Film.